This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States. The attacks and the U.S. response to them have had profound consequences for American domestic and foreign policy, as well as for international relations and global security. JMU Civic and JMU X Labs have partnered to gather and share stories of James Madison University alumni who have served and continue to serve in the military. If you have a story to contribute for our 9-11 at 20 series, please email civic at jmu.edu. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Logan Ziegler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. And I'm Jacqueline Dobern, the Communications Specialist for JMU Civic. In this episode of our special mini-series on 9-11 at 20, we talk with Samantha Huey, who commissioned through the ROTC at James Madison University while majoring in kinesiology and exercise science. In the Army, Samantha was a helicopter pilot and served as brigade aviation officer, company commander, and most recently as an aviation team lead. She was responsible for the planning, preparation, and execution of all aviation assets from the National Guard and Reserve components deploying overseas. She established training to support preparation and assessment of aviation assets and increased the ability to mass forces overseas quickly. Samantha is now a first officer for PSA Airlines based in Washington, D.C., and in the MBA program at James Madison University. We hope you enjoy learning from Samantha's experiences and invite your thoughts and comments. You can connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at JMU Civic and on Instagram at JMU Dukes Vote. On September 11, 2001, Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four commercial airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. A fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Close to 3,000 people died in the attacks. Although Afghanistan was the base for Al-Qaeda, none of the 19 hijackers were Afghan nationals. Mohammed Atta, an Egyptian, led the group, and 15 of the hijackers originated from Saudi Arabia. In response to the attacks, then-President George W. Bush vowed to win the war against terrorism. On September 18, 2001, President George W. Bush signed into law a joint resolution authorizing the use of force against those responsible for attacking the United States on September 11th. Subsequently, the Bush administration utilized that joint resolution as a legal rationale for its decision to take sweeping measures to combat terrorism, from invading Afghanistan to wiretapping U.S. citizens without a court order to standing up, to, to standing up the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Some two decades after the U.S.-led forces toppled the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, in what led to the United States' longest war, the Taliban insurgency persists. According to the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, at least 800,000 people have been killed by direct war violence in the U.S. post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan. Thousands of United States service members have died in combat, as have thousands of civilian contractors. Many have died later on from injuries and illnesses. Many have died later on from injuries and illnesses sustained in the war zones. 
Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and contractors have been wounded and are living with disabilities and war-related illnesses. Allied security forces have also suffered significant casualties, as have forces from the opposition. However, the vast majority of people killed in the fighting since 2001 have been the more than 310,000 civilians. In addition, the U.S. post-9-11 wars have forcibly displaced at least 37 million people in and from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. This number exceeds the total displaced by every war since 1900, except for World War II. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military, and did you realize what you were getting into when you joined ROTC at JMU? So I joined because I was playing AAU Amateur Athletic Union. It was a travel basketball team. And so I um, actually got the opportunity to see one of my friends who ended up going to West Point. Um, she, she started her plebe year there. And we went and uh, saw her. And the basketball team actually like welcomed us in and everything and taught me how to salute, taught me how to stand at attention. And then they stuck me in the cockpit of a Blackhawk and I fell in love. So there's a couple of things I fell in love with there, that, and then also I fell in love with the family aspect of the military. Um, it's just very close knit. And at that time I really needed that. And then it also, so I came back home afterwards and I told my grandfather, who's a Vietnam veteran, uh, that I wanted to serve. And he said, if you make it, I'll be your first salute. And I was like, if. And so I got a little mad. Um, I was like, I'm going to make it. I'm not just going to make it. I'm going to be a pilot. Um, so I ended up getting being a pilot. And then I also was a distinguished honor grad. But the biggest point of that was he was my first salute. So, um, and we like connected over that, but I had no idea what I was getting into. I knew I wanted to serve my country. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a pilot, but I didn't understand the deeper impact. So um, that pride in my country grew stronger through not just the ROTC program, but um, a general understanding of what I was getting myself into with the ROTC program. The love for my brothers and sisters in arms, um, that was a big deal to me. I mean, it continues to be a bigger deal to me. The people at ROTC, um, my girlfriends, are still my best friends today. I, we graduated in 2009, and we're still all really, really close because of it. Where were you on September 11th, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you? At ninth grade. Um, in Annandale High School, we did this thing. Um, there was a class, um, an hour and a half where it was only, four, it was an hour and a half, but it was two 45 minute periods and it would always switch out which class you were in. So I was in W6 and R3. W6 was my history class and R3 was my math class. Um, we got into math and one of the guys said that um, one of the towers was just a plane flew into the tower and I was like what in the world no um and then we got to w6 and a good friend of mine his dad worked at the pentagon and he had ran out of class because 
obviously a plane had hit the Pentagon and it ended up being exactly where his dad worked. Um, luckily his dad wasn't in there. Um, but that was like a huge deal. Um, I mean, my great, great aunt, um, she was still alive and she heard the plane come over. She's like, that's odd. You know, it changed my world. I mean, we, we were right next to DC. Everything that we did was different because of it. Thank you. I wonder if you can share your experiences serving in the global war on terror, um, subsequently named the Global Overseas Contingency Operations, and or the ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I wonder if you would also talk with us a little bit about how those experiences impacted you. Um, so when I went overseas, we were drawing down. Um, so kind of similar to what we're doing now. Um, so a lot of my job was movement of troops and, and equipment out of different areas um, so that they could blow it up <laughs> so that um, the FOBs weren't going to be overran um, with terrorists because we recognized a lot of the FOBs were actually being taken over by terrorists after we left them. Um, so any sort of building, anything was being utilized by the enemy. Um, which was kind of rough for us because like we didn't know. And then also I um, had to carry a lot of loved ones back um, to a, a larger FOBs, which was a little difficult um, because obviously the severity of it. Um, but with all of that, um, it gave me a deeper connection again to uh, my friend or like my brothers and sisters in arms, that was kind of like the biggest thing I got out of that. They understood. And it's not just like understanding, oh, we went through this. So like, you know, they understand what I went through. Like, it wasn't just that. It's like, hey, man, I know you, you had to go through a lot of crap that like I went through that, like, watching your back. And like, I don't know if you guys heard the the saying, I got your six. But that's always been like a thing where um, like, I feel a lot more at ease because like you just know that that person has your six. What do you want the public to appreciate about the United States military response to the September 11th, 2001 attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narratives? So it's been so long that a lot of people are starting to think like conspiracy theories Um and like, you know, hey, was this a real thing that happened or did we just go to war for no reason? Um, and the one thing that I probably would want us to know, like as Americans is like, no matter what, our world was shook, like, and we were attacked. And um, I don't I don't think like, I mean, I, I talked to my niece and my niece is 13. Right. So like she doesn't really get it and like understand the severity of it and like, hey, like this changed like Aunt Tata's and mom's world. And like we went into like service because of that. Like my sister serves as a nurse, like, you know, like, so we, there's a lot that changed because of it. Um, and the media, today's media doesn't put enough emphasis on that um, and how much it also changed the military. So like the military as a whole um, was operating in one way and had to change into a counterinsurgency um, environment. And so um, anybody could be the enemy at that time. And anybody was like, 
we didn't know what the terrorist looked like. You know, it was just, it could be a woman walking down the road, you know? And so um, that, that is really challenging, um, especially when you come back and having to turn off that switch. Um, I, I don't think that like flying over, I didn't really have as much of an issue with it, but like, I mean, I, I know friends who have issues with like turning off that switch, like and understanding that, um, you know, over there that you have to compartmentalize, like over there is completely different than when you're at home. And, um, I don't think that's like emphasized as much. From your perspective, what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in response to the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks from domestic and U.S. foreign policy? I'll go with foreign first, and then I'm going to go into domestic. So basically, foreign-wise, we went we went in there with very little backing. <laughs> so uh, other countries kind of, I think they're there's been a divide because of that. They don't trust us. They're like, you're too cocky. Like, why did you even think that you could do that? Like without anybody else's support. Um, And then in addition to that, because of that, um, I think that was the start of the divide in our country. And um, I mean, the world can see us and we have a lot of infighting because of, you know, and so, um, nobody really wants to be a part of somebody who's like fighting on the inside, you know, cause you're like, oh, you guys are a ticking time bomb. And so they're distancing themselves because of it. And so I think it started off with us being cocky and then the divide was the biggest part of it. And I think there needs to be a time where we recognize we're not sitting down and talking to each other and getting opposing opinions. We're like, we're just canceling everybody out that doesn't agree with what we're saying. I think that's going to create a huge problem in the future. In June, President Joe Biden announced U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021. As we engage in this conversation in July 2021, Taliban fighters are taking or retaking districts in Afghanistan. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? So there's a great book um, that's 408 pages and really dry to read, but it's called Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History. And um, it's about Great Britain taking over Afghanistan and how it wasn't possible. And they like just put all this money in there um, just to like basically blow it out. One of the biggest things that we have to recognize as a country is that not everybody governs the way that we govern. And the Middle East as a whole, a lot of different locations, not all of the Middle East, obviously, are governed by tribes, which is not something that we do. That's the way Afghanistan is governed. Um, and it makes it difficult to impose our beliefs. And that, not that we're imposing our beliefs, but it makes it difficult to do what we were doing over there and trying to create you know, this better world for Afghanistan. I think that, you know, understanding that I don't I don't think that it's not that I don't believe that we should have gone over there I 100% believe that we should have gone over there that somebody attacked us um I you know 
we got to take them back. But I do believe that we we needed to we need to like understand how they're governed in order to like help support their governments. And I don't know if that's happened with the drawdown. I think we're seeing exactly what we saw in Iraq when we started drawing down in Iraq, which was um, every fob that we took out, they took over. I think that we're going to continue to see that, which makes it really hard to um, like want to draw out of a country because you know that the enemy is just taking over exactly what like no no progress was made, no success. Um, and America wants it to be a success. Samantha Huey, we want to thank you for joining us and sharing your experience. Um, democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. We want to thank you, Samantha, for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? I think you need to sit down with the person with an opposing view, and you need to talk to them. Uh, talk to a veteran from any of the wars or conflicts that we've been a part of. Read opinions that you don't agree with and then discuss with your friends. It's all about understanding why somebody else thinks the way that they're thinking. I think that's going to make you a better human being and a well-informed human being to be able to like make a difference in, in our world, in our government. If you want to serve, heck yeah, you know, I'm all about it. Every time somebody wants to talk to you about it, I'm all about it. But if you don't want to serve, find another way to serve because this country gives so much to you. You really need to give back. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.